You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right. Uh, Well, uh, last week, 21 years ago, last week, uh, there were two movies that came out in theaters. It was a Wednesday, I know, because I was there. I was 10 years old. It was magical. Two movies came out. Uh, both were remarkable in their own right. The first of which was a movie called Casino, a mob movie featuring Joe Pesci. Remarkable uh, mainly because uh, it still holds the record for the most F-words in a Hollywood film. So congratulations, Joe. That's... Uh, the first movie. That's not the one I was uh, seeing, by the way. Uh, the one that I was seeing with my uh, dad that evening was a movie called Toy Story. And Toy Story, uh, you might have heard of it. It's, yeah, see? And uh, Toy Story is the very first full-length digitally animated feature that was to come out uh, in the theaters. And it was done by a little company called Pixar. They're still around, I think and uh, doing their thing. And I saw this uh, as a 10-year-old, and I just remember walking out of the theater going, what just happened, right? My whole world was changed. I'm 31, and I think I own all of the Pixar films right now, and occasionally I let my kids watch them with me. Uh, I just love them. I'm, I'm a nerd about it. And I, as, as the years have gone on, I've fallen sort of more in love with uh, Pixar. And uh, one of the reasons among many is the attention to detail, the attention to detail. Like, so I I love movies. Every time I'm preaching, I talk about movies, pray for me. But uh, with, with respect to digital films, digital animation films, there's something really unique about them. Like think for a minute about uh, live action movies. If you're a director of a live action film and you're filming a scene uh, where two people are talking, uh, in front of a sunset, you're going to set up the scene. Your actors are going to come out. You're going to press record. And then sort of whatever happens is what you get, right? If the sunset is kind of more pink than uh, purple that moment, that's what you get. If there are birds that fly through the back of your scene, well, that's what you get. If the, if the actors really couldn't land the plane after 30 takes, you got that take and that's, you know, you pick the best one and you go with it. But with digital films, you can't phone anything in. Everything is on purpose, right? Every, every inch of every frame, every moment, every line, every position of a body, every, every bird that flies across the screen, every color of every sunset is all put there by the director on purpose to tell his story. And, and I love that. And what I love about it is it's a parable of the Bible. The, the, the book that you have in your lap or on your iPhone, God bless you, is, is, um, is that every word, every moment, every story, everything that God commanded, every law, every prophecy, it's all there on purpose. And it, it, you know what that does when, when, we, when we come to the word of God like that, instead of just willy-nilly like it's, you know, just some other book, everything has immense importance. Our, our father wrote a book and every word in it was intentioned by him for us, for our good. And, and that fills God's word with profound, profound meaning. Do you see that? Now, 
if we're honest, most of us don't see the Bible that way practically. Now, I think if, if, if uh, we just talked theology for a minute, you would say, yes, that is true about the word of God. But practically, like if I just did a poll right now of our church and we, and we, we sort of surveyed Bible knowledge uh, and, and who knew what? Well, most of us would probably have a really good handle on, on a lot of the Psalms, right? Except for the ones where like David saying, kill all of my enemies, that's a little weird. So we skip those, but mostly the Psalms, right? We've got uh, the epistles, Paul's letters down pretty well. Uh, we all love Romans down here. Um, the gospels are pretty popular, right? Uh, we know some of the Old Testament. We're, we've definitely got Genesis 1 down, 2, 3. You get going a little bit further. Maybe we make it to Genesis 11 and then a lot of us terminate at that point, right? And, and uh, what do we lose at that point? Well, um, most evangelical Christians don't really have a good grasp on the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible as a whole, because there's just a lot of weird stuff in it, right? I mean, like, how many times have, have you been trying to get through Leviticus and you're like, if that dude talks about bodily fluids one more time... <laughs> I just don't know what I'm going to do. Or number, like there's a book in your Bible called Numbers. It's not exactly seeming like a page turner, right? It's called Numbers. And, and uh, so many of us lose things like the prophetic books. Two thirds of your Bible is prophecy. But man, that's weird. Like Ezekiel's got like, like this carriage with eyeball wheels rolling around. Like that's a real thing in your Bible that's happening. And you just, you don't camp there. That's not anybody's life verse, right? We turn the page and we just keep moving and we miss a lot of the prophecy and we miss a lot of the historical books because we get bogged down with the details of kings and all that. Genealogies. I know Rodney's gonna be talking about the genealogy of Jesus, I think next week. Most of us don't camp out there. And so what you get at the end of uh, our Bible reading as Christians, most of us practically, is you get a Bible Bible that just kind of looks like Swiss cheese, right? It's holy in the worst way. I didn't plan that joke. It just came. But here's the thing. Everything in your Bible matters. It all matters. It's all deeply relevant. And if we linger long enough over the text, we will see that everything is on purpose, written by God to help us understand the story of the gospel better. Because really what this Bible is, is one story, right? It's not 66 stories. It's one narrative arc pushing one message about the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. And I want us to see that this morning. Um, we're, this morning, we're gonna be talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And I just, I'm concerned that, that for a lot of us, it's not near as sweet as it, as it ought to be. I mean, that, what wonderful news it is that Jesus came uh, to live the life we couldn't, to die the death we should have, to rise from the dead. I mean, that's wonderful news. And even if you didn't have a knowledge of your Old Testament, that would still be sweet, but I think it can be sweeter. I really do think it can be sweeter for us. The end is always sweeter if you know the beginning. Nobody, nobody buys a book and uh, just turns to the last 10 pages and goes, man, that was a winner. That was a great book, right? In fact, the only book that we do that with is the Bible, right? Uh, but, but with every other book, you don't read it like that. And so I wanna challenge you uh, this morning to get into the whole work 
of the Bible. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But uh, um, in case you don't do that, I'm just going to do that for you for the next 40 minutes and there's nothing you can do about it. So uh, let's talk about where we were last week. Okay. Last week, uh, we were in uh, Genesis and we camped out a lot in Genesis 3 and we saw our first parents and we saw their sin and how they fell and their blunder and how uh, it offended a holy God and how it ruined them and not just them, but all of subsequent humanity after them. And it, and it all started in, in a garden called Eden. Now Eden was this amazingly perfect place that God made for us to enjoy. He made it for man to enjoy. And there were so many great things there. I mean, it was, it was sin-free. There was just beautiful uh, scenery there. You had all of these trees for, for eating and delighting in. It was, uh, it was a wonderful place, right? Um, and I wonder if when you think about Eden, what you think the, the best part about it is, because there's so many things that you could say about what, what is the sweetest part about it. Was it that you could just kind of grab, grab from virtually any tree there and just enjoy the fruit of that? That's pretty awesome. Was it that you could you know, ride the back of a puma and, and cuddle with a tiger cub? I, I, that's awesome too. And it wouldn't eat you, that's great. But the sweetest part about the Garden of Eden was this, Adam and Eve had God, like they had God in a way that, that, that it's hard to understand. Like, um, think about this for a minute. Genesis one, now if you'll see this one, you'll see this one uh, when you go back and read it. Now Genesis one, every time it talks about God, it talks about God as God. The, the Hebrew word is Elohim. God created, Elohim created, Elohim created, Elohim. God, 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 God. And then when you turn the page and you get to Genesis two, all of a sudden the, the language changes too. When he makes man, he changes his title. So no, no longer is he just Elohim, but he's Yahweh. Elohim. He's the Lord God. God goes personal, right? He was creating things. And then when he made man and planted him in the garden, he said, hey, I want you to call me by my name, right? I'm not just a, a deity. I'm not just a despot over here. I, I'm the Lord. That's, that's my name, right? This is, it's, it's like Queen Elizabeth looking at, at uh, her nation and going, hey, don't, don't call me that anymore. Call me Lizzie, right? That's, that's what's happening here, right? The, the emperor of the universe coming into Eden and saying, hey, call me by my first name, right? He, he gave them his name and he gave them his presence. Like, like we read in Genesis 3, that moment where Adam and Eve sinned and it said that, that God was walking around in the garden in the cool of the day. Like, like the Lord God walked among his people. Can you just imagine that for a moment? Like we are so eager, so many of us to, to, to be with God and know him. Like that's, that's what Adam and Eve had, man. They, they had an, an, a knowledge of God that, that it's hard to even fathom. He walked with them. He gave them his name. And uh, we just need to see the beauty of what we had in Eden. Because when we see the beauty of what we had in Eden, we can really know what it is that we lost. Right? Because if the, if the greatest part of the garden was communion with God, then the greatest tragedy of the fall was loss of communion. If the greatest uh, uh, part of Eden was communion with God, then the greatest tragedy 
uh, in the fall was the loss of that communion. Let's uh, look at Genesis 3, 23 and 24. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What do you think the worst part of sin is? It's a really important question to ask yourself. I'm, I'm afraid that with a lot of evangelicals, the way we talk about God and sin and the gospel, it makes it sound like um, the worst part about sin is that, man, it just makes life really hard. And you know what? It does make life really hard. If you are running headlong into sin, it is a grind, right? It is not a light burden or an easy yoke. It's hard. But is that the worst part for you? Or is the worst part for you hell? I mean, on some level, can we think of anything worse than, than eternal torment, right? That, that when you perish and terminate in your sin, you, you go to hell forever and ever and ever. Like that's unfathomably bad. But even that falls short of how bad the badness is to lose communion with God. So consider how you would answer that question for a moment, right? And consider that if your answer is not, I don't get God anymore, then you're missing it. You're missing the main point of the story. The main point of the story is that we had him and we lost him. Not that we had life and then when we ate the fruit, we died. That's bad. Death is bad. But losing God is worse than death. In fact, maybe that's the definition of death. You don't have him anymore. You lose him. So if the fall could be summarized is a loss of our communion with God in Eden. Then in some sense, the way I want us to think about the rest of the Bible, right? From, from Genesis three on, is to think about it in terms of one big story of God working to restore man back to Eden. Like if you're trying to get some handlebars on like, how do I jump into the word of God? And like, what, what should I understand is sort of like what's undergirding these, these passages of scripture. That might be a really helpful way to understand it. Like every page is ultimately God working to restore us back to Eden. And that's, and that's what we get in the subsequent chapters and books of the Bible is God working to do that. But of course now there's a problem, right? Because, because Adam and Eve sinned and they violated God's commandment. And so there's a problem of holiness now, right? Because uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but only holy people can kick it with God. That's sort of the, the rule. And when you lose holiness, you lose God. Now, what am I talking about when I say holiness? I think the first time I, I preached here, we did some word definition stuff. And I think it's helpful for us to, to put content on these Christian buzzwords that we talk about a lot. What is glory? What is holy? What is faith? What is all that? So let's talk about holy for a second. It's this Hebrew word called kavod, okay? And um, this word is, I'm sorry, it's uh, kadesh. Uh, and kavod is glory. Doesn't matter. All right, we're back. Um, and it means this. Essentially, it means to be separate from, 
to be distinct from, to be uh, uncommon, especially with regards to sin. And so if you think about those words, like an uncommonness, a separateness from, and when you think about God, that's the perfect explanation of him. He is utterly holy. He's utterly distinct. He's utterly other than us in every way, particularly in his moral perfection, right? That he is totally pure and clean and unstained by sin and the world. And so we call him in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. He's thrice holy. He's that holy. He's unbelievably holy. And for God to give people access to himself again, we have to remedy this unholiness issue that we have. Uh, one of the things I'm hoping in the next minutes that we're preaching is uh, that you would really start to feel a sense of the distance between you and God in your natural state because he is so much cleaner and purer and more righteous and beautiful and distinct than we could ever dream or imagine. But most of us don't approach God like that. But in the Old Testament, they did. They realized they had a holiness problem. And so God set up a system for them to deal with that holiness problem because God knows the best thing for you, the best thing for I is him. It's himself. So he's eager to get us back into that Edenic relationship, right? He wants that for us, but he's got to deal with our unholiness. So he set up a system, right? It was the, it was the temple, tabernacle, sacrificial system. So we're gonna nerd out for the, about the next 20 minutes, okay? Me and you. And I just want you to hang with me, okay? Because this is an attempt to, to fix the Swiss cheese of our understanding of the Bible for a minute. I want us to look at the tabernacle that God ordained for his people. And I want us to look at the sacrificial system before we arrive at talking about Jesus, okay? So put on your thinking caps. We're going to get in this for, for a minute. Okay, let's talk about the tabernacle for a minute. When you think about the tabernacle, and, and uh, look, let's be fair. The, the, this is not a passage of scripture that we camp on a lot. So I, it is okay if you're like, man, I don't even know what that word tabernacle means. It's okay. But when you think tabernacle for a minute, I want you to sort of think of it in these terms. It is the place where God meets with man in the Old Testament. Right? So in that sense, Eden was really the first kind of tabernacle, right? You see that? And then when they lost Eden, God fabricated one for them, right? And it was originally called the tent of meeting. And then he gave them specific instructions on the, the tabernacle. And then eventually when, when we get David and Solomon, we actually get the, the sturdy temple, right? The Solomon's temple, it was destroyed and then rebuilt later. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. So that's sort of the, the, the pattern of, of how things went. But to get a sense of like how important this is to God, a lot of times it's good to just think about uh, how, how much real estate is given to it in scripture. So just think about this for a moment. Uh, the creation account, like planet earth, the universe, all that is given two chapters in your Bible. The tabernacle is given over 50 chapters. Uh, detailing how it works, how it's built, where it should go, who's a part of it, what are the things inside of it, what are the ordinances that go around it, how do the sacrifices work within it. 
verse after verse after chapter after chapter is detailing this. And, and maybe another helpful way to think about the tabernacle, besides just saying, well, it's the place where God meets with man. We can, we can think about it as, as a double functioning thing. Uh, it is a, uh, on one hand, it's a finger pointing back to Eden, right? It's, it's a finger pointing back to Eden to say, this is what you had. You had access to me and we're gonna show you what access to me looks like now. But it's also a finger pointing forward, sort of like a, a silent promise that God is making through every page of the Old Testament to his people. Like it's, it's, it's a silent promise that God's saying something else is coming. And in a sense, the tabernacle is just a shadow that, that has been cast by the actual substance, Right? But it's, so it's a finger pointing both ways. That's, that's what the tabernacle is. I found a couple pictures that I thought would be helpful. Let's, let's put up the first one for a second. So uh, this is the tabernacle that's happening in the book of Exodus. Uh, it, uh, it's a rectangular structure and it's got this outer court out here. This outer court's about 150 feet long. So like the whole thing is not super big, right? Maybe sometimes we think of this as a massive thing, but this is just like 150 feet right here uh, around it. You have a, a, an entrance gate right here in the front, separated by some curtains right here. And that gate always faces to the east in its construction. Think about that for a minute. Why is that relevant? Which way did God kick Adam and Eve out of the garden from? The east side. And then he says, do you want to get back in fellowship with me? You come back through the East. Do you see that? It's all a parable. It's a parable. So you enter into uh, the outer court right there. Now that outer court uh, is, uh, is for the Israelites. They are allowed to enter into the outer court, but that's where it stops for them. Now just imagine for a moment, God says the tabernacle is where I'm going to meet with man. And then he says, by the way, you're not allowed in. Just think about that for a moment. There's, there's more to come to tease that out, but they didn't really have access. It stopped for them right outside in the dirt. Now let's zoom in for a second on the, uh, the actual tabernacle itself. So uh, this is the tabernacle construction. It's, it's again, it's pretty small. Uh, the whole thing uh, right here is um, 45 feet long this way. Uh, by 15 feet, by 15 feet high. So it's not a, a big building. And the whole thing, you can tell, it's, it's tied down with tent stakes. These are animal skins over it. The, the cloth that goes around the uh, outer cord, uh, there's just posts and it's, it's all very set up tear down. It's Stonegate really, uh, but with more gold and purple. Um, but that's what it gets. It's, it's just, it's transient, it's mobile, and it's that. And there's two sort of sections in here. Can I just come over here and do Ted Talk It for a second? Okay, so front portion uh, is called the holy place, right? And there's, there's uh, a few pieces of furniture in, in there. There's the table of the showbread that uh, they, they made uh, bread symbol or for every uh, one of the 12 tribes. So there's 12 loaves of bread there, uh, renewed every Sabbath, uh, Right here, you have the altar of incense. Uh, and then uh, you have the, um, oh, I'm sorry, the altar of incense is, is by the curtain right there. And then uh, the lampstand, the golden lampstand uh, right there. And you see the curtain, this is a cross section, of course. So, so the holy place 
was a place where the, where the priests, just the general Levitical priests could go and they were ordained by God. Priests represent the people to God. Like if you're ever wondering what, what a priest is or does, that's, that's what they do, right? They were ordained by God to, to go before God and represent the people to God. So, so there were sort of like the, the JV priests, they were kicking it in this space, right? And they were making sacrifices for the people in, in the holy place. But this back room, and now some of you are probably more familiar with this, this back room that's separated by a four inch thick veil right here, that was a very special place, a very holy place. And that's why they called it the most holy place. It's not a super original name, but that's what it is. It's also referred to as the Holy of Holies. And in that place, some amazing stuff went down. The only people who had access to that back room. So remember the, the outer court, that's where you are. Well, actually you're not there. Uh, you're getting killed by the Israelites because you're Gentiles. But uh, <laughs> if you're a Jew, you were there. The holy place, the Levitical priests were, were serving God in, in there. But into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could enter. Only the high priest could enter and only on a super, super limited basis. Inside the most holy place is the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, most of us unfortunately know that because of Indiana Jones, but there it is. Um, the Ark of the Covenant was a gold box that contained some items. It contained the Ten Commandments. It contained things like Moses's, or Aaron's staff that budded. It contained the jar of manna from the desert. And on top of that was something called the mercy seat, which is a solid gold block that rested to, to cover the lid. And on top of the mercy seat are two fabricated cherubim, two angels that face in, bowing in reverence. And it says in Exodus that right above the mercy seat, in between the wings of the cherubim, the presence of God would descend and meet with his people. But now what does that mean really? Because really we're talking about one guy getting in there, right? And, and then like super not often. Just feel this for a minute. Just feel the lack of access that these people had. That like where God says he's gonna meet with you, only one dude in your whole world can even go in there. And then he can't even just go in there just to talk to God. It's just not, it's not like a hang time where he's having a little Devo and he's got Shane and Shane in the background. It's not like that, right? It's like you go in, and you fear for your life because if you didn't do this thing right, you are dying in about five seconds. Do you feel like just how little access these people had to the real tangible presence of the living God? But this was the system. And because it's a parable, it's saying something to us, right? What's it saying? Everything here is screaming this, God is holy and you are so not that's the point of this. And if that wasn't enough to reinforce that, he set up a system of sacrifices that would reinforce this even further. Because when people sin, sacrifice has to be made. The shedding of blood has to happen. It's God's universe. He sets up the rules. Those are his rules. And so to prove that to them, he set up the sacrificial system. We can lose this now if you want. I'm just gonna run down for you a handful of the sacrifices that were happening on a regular basis. Um, 
We have the burnt offering for sins committed in general. We have the peace offering to express fellowship between God and the offender. There was a sin sacrifice that the people did to atone for unknown sins where no restitution was possible between them and the offended party. We had a trespass reparation sacrifice for unknown sins where restitution was possible for the other party. There was a daily burnt sacrifice around which the whole tribe of Israel sort of oriented their day. There was a remembrance sacrifice done seven times throughout the year to remember the Exodus. And then there was a new moon sacrifice beginning each new lunar month. That's what they had. Every day of their life, there was blood and there were animals being slain. God is holy and you are not. And they saw it every day of their lives. And if that wasn't enough, if that wasn't enough, there was a final sacrifice to be made annually. And it was the sacrifice known as the Day of Atonement. Uh, many of us have heard this. It's, it's uh, for the Jew, they would call it Yom Kippur. Let's throw that picture up again, actually. Uh, the Day of Atonement was an incredibly solemn day for the people of Israel. This was a sacrifice that the high priest made. He couldn't even get started on the sacrifice itself until he cleaned himself with his own sacrifice. So he would rise up early in the morning. Uh, John MacArthur in one of his commentaries about this said that before he even got to the sacrifices of the day of atonement, the high priest that morning would have already killed 22 animals just to prepare, right? This is how far God is saying the Israelites are from the person of God. This is how the gap that they have to cross. Then he would, he would sacrifice the bull to cleanse himself. After coming back out from sprinkling the blood uh, from the altar, he would come back out of the tabernacle and two goats would be waiting for the high priest. They'd be tied up. Go one picture back. They'd be tied up uh, to that uh, bronze altar right there. They'd cast lots for the goats and one goat would be determined to be the sacrificial goat and that other goat was determined to be the scapegoat. Now the sacrificial goat, they would kill, let its blood drain off of that altar. They'd catch it in a basin and then the high priest, trembling mind you, because if you mess this up, it doesn't go well for you as the high priest. He walks into the tabernacle passes through the holy place, pulls back the veil and enters the holy of holies. And there before the Ark of the Covenant, before the mercy seat where God's presence is, he sprinkles the blood of the sacrifice for the people of Israel onto the Ark. This sacrifice was done because even with all of these specific sacrifices that were happening, there were still forgotten about sins. There were still overlooked sins. You cannot not deal with your sin. And so the blood of this goat was, was a sacrifice for that, for the catch all of every other sin that's out there that we don't even know about. He sprinkles the blood on the altar and he leaves. And then he returns and there's one more goat waiting for him, the scapegoat. The high priest would kneel down by the scapegoat and he'd put his hands on the scapegoat's head. And then for the next however long, he would confess the sins of the people of Israel onto the scapegoat as if to sort of vicariously pass the sins of Israel onto this animal. And then what happened, and one of the reasons that we call it a scapegoat is after he put the sins of the nation on this goat, he would send it off into the wilderness never to be seen again. That was the day of atonement. And it happened once a year, which is significant. 
it never ended. So long as Israel was Israel, this sacrifice never ended because it was never good enough. Maybe you had peace inside you for a little bit as an Israelite that, man, finally my sins have been dealt with, but how much longer before you stumbled again? And then it was, man, I can't wait for next year. That's what they lived in. Just feel that. Like how heavy these guys must have felt. Like their uncleanness is constantly parabolized in front of them. And just, it's into this system, this bloody sacrificial system and this burden and this weight. It's into this world that the son of God appears. You remember how we talked about at the beginning, knowing the beginning sweetens the end. Do you feel that a little bit right now? The son of God appeared into this. And here's what we read about him. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Let's stop right there for a minute. Remember how we talked about God is returning us, restoring to us Eden? Isn't it interesting the language here is just throwing our minds back to Genesis 1 and 2. We, John is launching us back into that world of the first chapter of the first book of our Bible again. I mean, he even begins the book with the same words, in the beginning. And then what does he go on to say? All things, verse three, were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. That sure as heck sounds like in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, doesn't it? But it doesn't stop there because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then after the earth was formless and void and the spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters of the deep, then what happened? God created something else. He created light. Verse four, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John is throwing our minds back into Genesis 1. Do you see that? And I think he's doing that because he's showing us what Jesus came to do, which is restore to us Eden. And the reason I think that is because of this. Let's go down all the way to the end of that, uh, those 14 verses. And I wanna look at that last verse for a minute. God, creation, light, and then this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt there is the Greek word skeno. And that word is translated other places in your Bible as tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The word became flesh and set up his tent among us. The word became flesh and became for us the meeting place between God and man. J.I. Packer of the incarnation says this, the real difficulty, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us doesn't lie in Good Friday message of atonement or in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of the incarnation. He's saying there, the most baffling thing that God ever did wasn't the death on the cross. The most baffling thing to the human mind that's ever happened is that God would condescend to become one of us, to dwell with us. 
baffling. He came, it became flesh to tabernacle among his people. The temple was a shadow. Christ is the substance. Do you see that? God is painting a picture in the Bible. And this, this story terminates at Jesus. And it should make us stand in awe. But he's not just the temple for us. Because if he was just the temple, we would still have a problem. You can't just go hang out with sinners because you're still God and there's still sin. It's not like you can just say, I was kidding about the sacrifice thing. Now that's not important anymore. He's the temple, but he's the temple because he's also the high priest who went into the Holy of Holies on our behalf. But he's not just the high priest. He's the high priest and he's the sacrifice. He is the goat that was slain. He is the blood in the bowl that was sprinkled on the mercy seat. But he's not just the sacrifice, he's the scapegoat. He is the one who absorbed your sin and my sin. Remember how, how Paul says, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That he absorbed our sin, not, not as just a picture like the goat, he actually did. And then he was cast off, separated from God on the cross. Do you see the parable unfolding? He's, he's not just the scapegoat. He's the veil. Hebrews says that we enter into God's presence through the torn veil of the body of Christ. That in Christ giving himself for us, he made entrance into the presence of God for us. So that if you are ever meeting with God, you are meeting with God because you are passing through the broken body of Jesus for you. He's the whole picture. He's everything. He has done it for us and he deserves our worship for it. Amen? I have just one or two quick applications for you and, and then we're gonna be done. The first is this, in light of that, stop sacrificing. I don't mean stop serving God. I mean sacrifice in the sense that I'm trying to make him okay with me. That has been dealt with. For so many years, I thought as a Christian that I would work really hard, I would do some more, I would share the gospel more, I would get all these, these sacrifices for God. Look what I did for you, God, and that somehow I could appease his holiness. And I thought in doing that, that, that I had it figured out because these other people who just embrace the grace of God and that's that, they're so, they, they so belittle the holiness of God, I thought to myself, my God is a holy God and he deserves my labors. The irony of that, and if that's you, the irony of us thinking that is that it's not that our God is uh, too holy. It's that our God is not holy enough. You know why? Because it assumes that my behavior, my trifle little sinful efforts are actually going to appease a holy God. My, my holiness of God thinks that I can attain to the holiness of God when I act like that. When you work to earn his uh, grace and his love for you, you are presuming that his holiness is here, but actually his holiness is way up here. There's nothing you could ever do to attain to it. So let's stop. Let's stop and realize that, that for the Christian, 
we affirm that the holiness of God is so high up there that it takes God himself to reconcile us, not our efforts. So this picture, the Old Testament, Christ coming, fulfilling the promise to do something about our sin, it is a command to us to stop our sacrifices and rest in the final sacrifice of Christ. And then the, the last thing would just be this. I can't help but, but think that this should produce in us a marveling at our access. We have access to God. Like you came in here this morning and we sang, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, right? And you know what? At the end of that song, he didn't strike you with a lightning bolt. It's amazing. You survived singing that song. Congratulations. Like we should marvel at the fact that we come in here sometimes so flippantly, if we're honest, and we sing songs to our God that generations past could never have done. We are promised the presence of God, not just in Jesus, but the Holy Spirit resides, like the, the Holy God of the universe resides inside of us, the scripture says. And he stirs up our affections for God and we sing songs of praise to God and, we, and our prayers rise up to God and he hears our prayers and he delights in our prayers and they fill up bowls of incense, the Bible says, in heaven. And all of that is possible because of Jesus and because of what he accomplished for us. Not because de facto that's just what happens because that's all we've ever known. It wasn't all that happened in the past. This is a great morning for us and during this Advent season approaching Christmas for us to just stop and marvel and to remember that it cost the Son of God his life for me to enter through his torn body to worship him this morning. And I think as we sing, uh, as, as we get ready to worship right now, as we sing, that should be on the front of our minds and, and, and filling up our hearts that this is an honor, God. There's no more sacrifice needed to be made. Jesus has paid it all. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we feel honored that we get to come this morning into the presence of the living God and we survive. We declare right now, this room declares right now that you are holy, holy, holy. But God, you, you aren't just holy, you are gracious. And you sent your son to reconcile Eden back to us. We have fellowship with you and we declare this morning that we don't want to squander a minute of that. Lord, we, we pray that you would, you would fill our hearts with gratitude as we sing songs of worship to you, as we make much of you in our hearts, as we read your word, as we pray to you in the coming weeks leading up to Christmas. God, we pray that it would just be such sweeter news now that we know the beginning and what it took to get here, the end. God, there, there is no temple in the new heavens and the new earth because the Lord God and his lamb are the temple, Revelation 21, 22 says. You are 
the temple. And we meet with you now because of the shed blood of our savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for that in his good name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.